right, good afternoon, folks. My name is Travis. We are Oscar Mike Radio. Oscar Mike Radio is part of the Hubazoo Network. That's W-H-O-O-B-A-Z-O-O. You can find out more on hubazoo.com. And this is episode 108. That's right, this 108. And I am remote. Mission top secret destination unknown. But still, I am in what has to be one of the coolest places I've been in a while. And it is my great pleasure to be with Gary and Jake as we talk about the military, we talk about history, World War I, because I am in, ladies and gentlemen, I'm in a, in a, in a collection of, of military memorabilia and history that you won't find anywhere else very easily. So without any further ado, Gary and Jake, welcome to the show. Hello, uh, thanks uh, for having us, Travis. Absolutely, same thing. Like I said, I, I'm so excited and pumped up that I can't, I can't help myself. And come to find out, when I rolled up in the driveway, I knew that I was in somewhere different because there was an actual World War II Jeep in the garage, and it just got better from there. So before we dig into the collection, I, I want to talk about a couple of things. Mainly, I was pleased to find out that you served in the Marine Corps, uh, Gary, but your father also served in World War II. I was, I was hoping you could kind of tell us about his service. Yes, he enlisted in 1944 at age 17. He, um, he went over to England and he, and he uh, got put on an LST-310, the Lancashire tanks, and he participated in the Normandy invasion, landing in Omaha Beach. On that morning of June 6, 1944, um, he uh, was one mile off Omaha Beach that morning when all the infantry was landing and all that. And uh, that previous night, they had let off 13 ducks about five miles out of the water, and 11 of them sank. And unfortunately, a lot of the crews drowned and sank. and he, that's probably was one of his worst memories. But then after that, he went back and forth between the English Channel and, and uh, France and England. And he would bring him back prisoners, bring him back wounded. He brought back the uh, 101st Airborne. In fact, he said they were one of the toughest guys he'd ever seen. He said they spent as many days on land as they were supposed to spend hours. Actually, I have one of his knives, a boot knife from him. I'll have to show you. Oh, wow. But... Uh, yeah, and then he finished up his tour. He, um, he actually they drove some um, uh, ammunition. Three LSTs were laden with ammunition. They were going up the Seine River, and they they went too close to the Guernsey Islands, and they they started firing on them. So his LST, they would see the flash, time to time that the skipper would turn the boat and it would. The, the uh, explosion would land like right where the ship was. And if he, any, at any time there, he would say, I, I wouldn't be speaking here right now. None of us would be here. Now, how how old was your, your father when he was serving in World War II? Basically 18. What? Yeah, he actually started it, went in at 17, and he was 10 days prior. He turned 18, and he was at Normandy Beach. And then he finished out, like say, going back and forth to prisoners. He was bombed. He was shelled. He was, he was the planes. Um, and then he ended up getting um, jaundice. Oh wow! 
and he ended up in the hospital prior to his discharge in 46. But um, he's very, very proud. He lived to be 91, and he, I have all his, his uh, uniforms, his, his books, his pictures. His, I have all, all his, his stuff. So, so this is, is that how you decided to join the military? Were you drafted? Um, when did you serve yourself? I served in the, went in 1970, and that was a very high draft number. So I joined. But, you know, I was 18, and a lot of us needed a good kick in the pants. <laughs> in 18, we all needed that, so I joined, and I got the infantry. It was only a two-year enlistment back then. That's all you had to do. And you, you, you didn't do too much of an MOS, so I got, was a machine gun OP-31. I ended up in an infantry company, a weapons platoon in uh, Kaneohe Bay. Echo Company, Secretary of the oh. Marines. So you had the you had the resort duty, right? That's what everybody says. <laughs> but you, you you a Marine also, you know that there's no no resort there no matter what. No, no, a lot of heat, a lot of moss, a lot of uh, a lot of wet clothes all the time. Wet clothes, mud. Hawaii had no snakes. It's funny, nobody knows that, but they didn't. But when they had our centipedes, and they were a foot long. Right, right. They're and huge. You, you can't camp out, and they would get underneath your poncho. Because <laughs> they were trying to keep warm, so you turn it up in the morning and be like loaded with these things you got to sleep with all night. <laughs> so, so when you went into the Vietnam War, what did what did your father think about that after serving in World War II? Well, unfortunately, we were my parents were divorced, and I didn't really talk to my father that much during that time. But um, no, he was he was proud I was there. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't serve in Vietnam. It's just the way it was. It was winding down. And um, I was all, as I told you earlier, I was all dressed up, but they just didn't want me. I, I meet your son, Jake, through a um, project we're working on for the New England Center and Home for Veterans. It's their 2018 Leave No One Behind Gala, right? What we're trying to do is really bring some awareness and attention to World War One. And as I got into this project that we're doing, I learned that just not 20 miles from where we are right now, German U-boats sunk boats off the Cape. Right, they did off of, uh, I think it was Easton. Easton. Yeah, yeah. They did. It was just in the paper the other day. About uh, that. I didn't know that uh, the, 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 the country of India, well, it wasn't India at the time, committed 100,000 troops to help the British. The Gurkhas. Yeah, the Gurkhas and those guys to help out in World War One. You never hear about that. And, and I started learning so much, and it, it's kind of different for me because, as we talked about before, my kids played this video game called Battlefield, and a lot of what they know about World War One comes from this video game. So we started talking, Jake and I, about how to make this project more real. And he said, my father has this collection. Now, I've seen collections before, and generally it's maybe a footlocker at best uh, of stuff. It might be a suitcase or a duffel, a sea bag with some old stuff in it. Uh, suffice to say, ladies and gentlemen, he could, he could pack a U-Haul with all the things he has. I am an absolute heaven right now. So I guess I want to know is, is how did you get into this? I mean, you served in the Marine Corps, you you come from a military family. What 
started this whole process of collecting this this stuff for, like a better term, this is history right here. Yeah, we were in the middle of it. Um, and I also want to add, my grandfather served in World War One. Really? I have a picture of him over there. He's in there, and he was actually in 17th Regiment Company E. Served in uh, Echo E Company also. No kidding. Um, ten years later, so yeah, he did serve. He was he didn't go across overseas, but he he did. He was also in the military, so we have a military family. I guess so. But um, no, we we started. I used to go to Florida, and I started visiting some battlefields, and I visited. Most of them on the East Coast, and then, and I ended up getting going to some museums, and I was just like, you know, I got to have some of this stuff. So I started with some buckles and some uh, buttons and this and that, and it just I visited uh, from Appomattox to Harpers Ferry, Antietam, Sharpsburg, Gaines Mill, White Oak Swamp, Mechanicsville, um, Gettysburg numerous times, um, Sharpsburg, like I said, uh, White Oak Swamp, most of the Petersburg, and then I, which I guess what you call, I get bit by the bug, and then it just doesn't go away, and I still collect. I've been on eBay for 18 years, and I... That is the only thing that he will uh, do on the computer is uh, go on eBay or or uh, I'll listen to YouTube. That's it. Then I, I got hot in World War One, and I just prior to the uh, the anniversary, I said I'm going to get 100 uniforms. So I got I got up to 80. I got 80 80 helmets and almost got my hundred limit, but uh, <laughs> I have, I have 150 World War, War, War 250 World War Two uniforms. What? It's just it's too late to turn back now. <laughs> that way. So your feedback rating on eBay must be high. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> but but I'm walking around here, and, and folks, I know it's a podcast, so I can't really, well, I'm going to try to show you on, like, the Facebook live stream. We'll have some pictures in there. But, but this isn't like going to a costume shop and buying a military costume and dressing up as it. You can look at these and see that this is an actual legit set of Marine Corps alphas. These are the actual helmets that the Doughboys used back in the day. And it's all right there in, in three dimensions that you can look at uh, within reason, touch, and, and examine. And I guess one of the first things that, that I would ask uh, after looking at the uniforms, is it just me or do they seem small? Because a lot of military guys now are six foot three, six foot four, 200 plus pounds. These are all like 34s, 36s. Yeah. It's tough to find anything over forties because forties would be like someone would buy them to reenact, and that's that's why they even the world one's even smaller. They probably average thirty fours. Were men just smaller back then? Must have. Hey, you now look at the size of that. You know, from behind you, it almost looks like a tube top. The way it's just cut off on the bottom. Well, that's uh, what they call the eyes now. Is the, the Ike jackets. It's just a class A's with the long ones. The short ones are called the Ikes. Oh. The Eisenhower jackets. Just, just a different style. Right. Same thing. But um, no, and, and it's funny. I had seven high school seniors here a week ago, and they looked at it and said, "Boy, you must have a lot of ghosts down here." I said, "It doesn't like doesn't work like that. I display it with pride, dignity, and loyalty, and that's that's what you do. I don't mix things up. I don't. Everything is taken." Hung up, it's all stored in plastic, stored in, in, in closets and all that, and it's taken out, and it's all done with, with dignity. 
What was it like showing these high school seniors this collection, and what did you see in their eyes as they looked at this? A couple of them were going to join. One or two were going to join the Marines, and they took more interest. The other ones, they came in one ear, one out the other, unfortunately. Like I tell you, they thought Omaha Beach was the place you bought steaks at. No way. Yeah. So we need to get it through. And actually, right now, the, the problem with the, the whole hobby is we're not getting the young people in it. And that's what we need to do. We need to get, they just have no interest. Like you said, they have no idea if you said Bella Wood or uh, Hurricane Forest or um, any other Taro or Iwo Jima. They have no idea what that is. And we need to know that 28,000 Marines were in the, the, the casualties of Iwo Jima. And they would just take one island so we could advance and get closer to Japan and we could bomb them. But uh, just we need, to, we need to get more of them. They need to know more. They need to learn more. We need to teach more. That's, you know, that's it. And like I said, I don't have any ghosts down here. So, Jake, you grew up, obviously, watching this. You know that your grandfather served in World War II. Your dad served during the time of the Vietnam War. What's it like when watching your dad collect this stuff and seeing the look on his face when he brings in an item he's trying to get. I have seen all of the packages coming every week through our wide world of eBay. And it is uh, like a, from something which was a very new and interesting at first. And I have uh, grown to appreciate the uh, collection that he has and uh, the uh, wealth of knowledge that he has uh, gained through it. Well, I mean, it really came to my view about your perspective when we asked for help with this project. You knew a lot of the World War One things we were talking about, and I'm like, okay, there's something different here about you. So to, to, to give context, I'm talking about why it's important that, that we, we raise awareness to this. And, you know, Jake knew what a Doughboy helmet was. He understood different parts of the chevron, parts of the uniforms. And I'm like, okay, he says he didn't serve in the military, but he really understands rank structure and different kinds of uniforms. And he tells me about this collection. And again, folks, uh, my words don't do this justice. I mean, there's like legit signs, old newspapers that you can see from the, 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 the 1920s, 30s, 40s. It, it's really a, a step back in time. And to hear you talk about this is making a lot of this real. Um, I guess since you fired a machine gun in the Marine Corps, you were an M60 gunner. What do you think the difference in weaponry was like for World War One versus what you used and what I used? Because I can't imagine fighting a war with a bolt-action rifle. But our forefathers did. They did, and if you know about the 1903 Springfield, we started with that we didn't have enough rifles in the beginning, so they came up with a model 1917. Three companies produced it: is Eddie Stone, Winchester, and Remington. And like we were, we had a shortage of rifles. We had like six hundred thousand. We were trying to train a couple million men. So these companies stepped up. They produced these rifles, but they were bolt action, like we said, probably six round, five round, a stripper clip, and six rounds. And then they didn't they just got into, but they did have the machine guns, uh, the different ones, and then it was, uh, the Germans had them also. It was. It was just a terrible war. Then they had gas, and they used gas. And they used the artillery, and um, this was a very vicious war. So, did you study trench warfare at all? Because one of the things that, that 
I need to learn about is why was trench warfare used so heavily in World War One, but then almost completely done away with not ten years later for World War Two. Well, not ten, but you know what I'm saying, ten, yeah. fifteen for World War Two. Like, like it, it's not even part of it. You're right. They, they, they used the trench warfare, but they got they didn't, didn't get anywhere. They, they, they did lose hundreds of thousands of guys to gain four miles like Ypres and all that in Belgium, back and forth for a gun. And they gained nothing. In World War II, they would just go around it, like the Maginot Line. They would go around it, like the, the, the French just stood in their line and the Germans just flanked it. Went right around it, ignored it, left them there, standing. Left hundreds of thousands of guys doing nothing and just went right around it. Whereas World War I, you fought head on to try to get the trenches, and sometimes you'd lose 50,000 guys, like the, the, the Somme in, in Belgium. And, uh, and, they'd lose, and they would um, gain nothing. And, wow. Which I have a lot of relics from there also. Um, one of the things that uh, was evident in World War II that I wanted to kind of go down and talk to you about is the, the German equipment. Uh, there's a lot of stories that I've read, a lot of history I've read, where the German equipment, for a lot of reasons, was was they, they were the superior uh weaponry maker, whatever you want to call it, for their time. Even compared to the Japanese and Americans, they were the best. Were, 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 was there, were, were there guns and, and, and vehicles better than ours in World War One, or was it pretty much a, a level playing field? It was probably pretty much a level playing field. We had the, the, the Springfield, and the, we had the, uh, they had the, the, the Gila, Gila 98, which was the same thing, but just a bolt-action rifle. So they had nothing and the uh, um, Spandau, the different machine guns, and um, they put it together. But the, the, when you get to World War II, the Japanese had the, the worst, the junkiest. Really? Oh, it's just some of their rifles. There's a big difference between early war and late war Japanese. You could just I have a lot of bayonets in the, in the, the uh, 90 Arasaka. And the quality of the, the rifles themselves is just uh, unbelievable. In the beginning, they used steel parts. In the end, they used wood parts for butt stocks and stuff like that. Because it's difficult. The Japanese had the worst. Thank God they didn't have any better. Because we had a hard enough time with them for their ferocity and tenacity. What I've been read is like the Japanese Zero for their airplanes were superior to a lot of the American airplanes in the first part of World War II. But everything I've read, Gary says that they, they got better we got better training and got better aircraft as time went on, and we had more of it. Right. The Japanese Zero had one big thing called the gas tank was right behind the pilot. <laughs> and if you, you hit there, you hit that, it was the end of the Zero. Zero was faster than ours. In the beginning, we had the P-40 Warhawks, and they had F-4Fs and the F-6Fs. And then in the end, we ended up with the Mustangs, and they're much, much more superior planes. But the, the, the Japanese Zero was an easy plane to shoot down because... You could get a shot of it. The gas tank was right behind the pilot. That couldn't have been a good thing. Not really. I was wondering, in your words, if you could speak about Iwo Jima for a minute. I know we're kind of focusing on World War One because of, of Jake's involvement, but a lot of people still don't understand why Iwo Jima was so important. At George College, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah um, I had a couple of Iwo Jima survivors here. Some of the, some no kidding. Here. They passed, but they autographed a couple of things for me. But 
the reason was the island hopping. So we could get the wounded B-29s would come back and they had no place to land. So a lot of them had a ditch. Well, now we, we've got closer. The B, that's, that was the whole significance of the Iwo Jima, which is another landing hop closer to the Japanese mainlands. And it worked. We just kept getting closer and closer and closer. And then, you know, our bombing campaigns were off. And then we, I think we were what the B, uh, B-29, you know, like A and the uh, Colonel Paul Tibbetts, he dropped into right. one on, uh, on the Hiroshima and then Nagasaki was a, a box car. And uh, those were top 10 units, I believe, which was one step closer to Iwo. So it just was a uh, methodical move on thing. and But they just sacrificed so many people to get these islands. But if we had to go back to the mainland, thank God Truman made the decision atomic bomb and I'm not an advocate of the nuclear war but if we didn't we would have, it would have taken a million men to get there to Japan and so Iwo Jima was a stepping stone and it was a costly one so the three marine divisions yeah taken fourth fifth and sixth no third fourth and fifth in, in your mind in your view as as I look around at these again these these for me they're priceless this is better than any museum I've ever been in. I've been to the Smithsonian and the uh, in D.C. Why is World War One important to remember now? After well, it was supposedly the war to end all wars. It was the Great War, but it didn't turn out like that. We we didn't we didn't make what another twenty thirty years we were back at it again. We can't seem to get things right. So I mean, we thought we had it right, finished it, and then. And then at least the only thing is there was no more gas, which already we use the color gas today, it's all ingredients to be. But um, it was the one, it was a, it was a you know, big step up from the Civil War, from the Span M War. It was big as far as technology. We got into the tank, the flamethrower, the uh, machine guns. None of those were in, in, in existence with uh, these other wars except for the artillery. But we had a lot more advanced artillery in World War One. Pretty vicious and brutal. And then the trench warfare, that was like you say, another I just couldn't imagine getting shelled, but the amount of tonnage that they would it was in tons, thousands of tons of ammunition. Imagine being shelled for thirty days straight, every morning, noon and night. I mean no man how can any man stand up to that? I mean, one of these guys went crazy. Well, that, that was around the time in, the, I think, 1920, uh, Britain did a study with Sigmund Freud. That's where the term shell shock came from. I mean, because of that, though, that's, that's why that, that's there. You know, Jake, um, you've been part of this project we're working on, the Lincoln Center Home for Veterans. What's it like talking with friends and your, your father about this project that, that you're a part of and, and seeing some interest now in the younger generation about World War One? and what we've done. Well, I can see the uh, genuine excitement on his face uh, when we uh, take the uh, time to talk about these things. And it is a rewarding experience, to say the least. And as uh, far as the younger generations getting a message out and whatnot, that is something that never is easy, but I am happy to be a person that can help vocalize this and can help be sort of a person that can help lead 
this and um, uh, make it cool for uh, people to uh, enjoy this and uh, appreciate history. I think that's. I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it, it's it's people like your father and yourself making this relatable to younger people. And maybe you had seven seniors over and only two really got it, but those two got it. Those two, you know, came in and said, "Wow, this is somebody really sacrificed to to so we could have the life we enjoy today." And, and this is just you know cool as hell. Excuse the expression. So. I, I think it's relevant and I think it's important a hundred years later. Absolutely. I mean, like you say, we, we got to remember World War One. I. I mean, that's what we, like I say, we started with this, um, you know, generation. And uh, and then we had World War Two, which was, we, we, were, we, were, we were nothing. We, were, we weren't prepared at all. We got December 7, 1941, we were attacked. We all jumped into it, but it's goes to show what the country, especially as America, is capable of doing. We can get off our hinds and, and get up there. And and, uh, and and World War One started this. We weren't prepared at all for World War One. We, we reacted to it and we fought a year and a half. We lost our fair share of guys. We went into a uh, really firestorm there. But in World War Two, the country got up even more. I mean, we live four miles from a base, Camp Edwards, and they trained hundreds of thousands of guys, and I have a lot of artifacts and different you know, photos and from there, but most of those guys all went over to Italy, they went to um, the Normandy, and they went to France, and then, um, but they were trained like four miles from here. So no kidding. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's still, it's, it's the oldest Air Force base. Uh, yeah, they um, uh, changed the uh, name of it from Camp Edwards to Otis, and that's... Well, right nearby, it's, 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 like, it's honestly down American. the street. No, I and, learned something new. I, I, yeah. I, 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 I'm like, I've never heard of Camp Edwards, now I know why. Yeah, but uh, this, well, even though it's not going to be good radio, uh, here's a picture of the uh, an uh, barracks. And that's what they did in one year. That's why I put the two together. The 1940 photo shows nothing. And then one year later, we'll, do, we'll, we'll put a 30 barracks so in a day. Man. But it's gets to show what this country can do. Unfortunately, we need a war to, be, to make us get up and do that. But we're capable. But we needed it from these, this generation of kids. These generation of kids, like I said, they thought over our beach the place you bought snakes at. You know, it's like... <laughs> I, I like to invite people here who are interested in it. I, I always will and I always do. I'll put out stuff where normally I have, you can just walk in out of the room and you, you, you'll, you'll get enough of it. So the kids came with the dad, and I was more than happy to have them here. You know what I mean? It's like I said, if I touch one, if I touch two, it got into their heads, and we were mission accomplished. I, I know my, my kids are interested, and it, it's easy sometimes not to take them to the air shows or the museums, but if you get the opportunity and they want to go with you, I feel it's my responsibility to take them. Uh, I feel it's the least I can do. Um, I, I wish, Gary, that my grandfathers had talked to me more about their World War II service than they did. They, they said almost nothing. I saw a picture of their, their ships. They're both in the Navy. I saw a picture of their uniforms, and that's pretty much all they said. And, and so I think it's important because I think kids are curious. I mean, Jake, we're finding out people at, at 
the, the group we're doing this with didn't know anything about World War One, and they're starting to go out on their own and ask us questions. It has to be, for me, it's a good feeling. I don't know how you feel about that. It is uh, something where a lot of people are uh, kind of stuck in their uh, day-to-day roles, and this will give them an opportunity to essentially come out of their shell and help out in a, uh, a very positive thing. Awesome, awesome. Well, folks, we're, we're winding down. So, again, this all got started by this 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 cast project, this cast member project we're doing for the New England Center and Homeless Veterans 2018 Leave No One Behind Gala. I'll have a link to that in the blog post for the podcast, and definitely want to check that out. You're going to see uh, people dressed up in World War One attire, for the, the live stream they're going to do. It's going to be very, very cool. And for me, I'm going to have pictures in the uh, Facebook live stream that I do for the podcast uh, next week. But I just want us, as we get near to Veterans Day and Armistice Day, to understand that 100 years ago, we, we had kids that were between the ages of 16 and, and, and 20 doing things that we just don't see every day now. So I just want to say thank you to Gary and Jake for having Oscar Mike Radio down here to talk with me. Uh, I'm going to take some more pictures. You want to check out uh, the blog post, the Facebook post. Uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for having us here. And like I said, we want, we want, Jake and I wanted to, is there anything we could do to help you guys out? We perpetuate this, and that's what we wanted to do. That's our goal. That's, that's the mission of all this, and I will maintain this as long as I can. Everybody asks me, what are you going to do with it? Probably die with it. I'm not getting rid of it. Your 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 lovely wife of 38 years uh, must uh, enjoy seeing you. Uh, I can see your face lying up, and, and so uh, hopefully we'll be back to talk to you again in the future for other things. And folks, again, uh, you heard this here on Oscar Mike Radio. This family has been great. We are out.